0: Hi everyone, I'm Josh and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens. The podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. When I was 10 years old or so, my family did a cross-country drive from where we lived in upstate New York to what would become our new home in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I remember it well. I used to love road trips as a kid. I liked highway truck stops, those greasy rectangles of hash browns, which provided the perfect vehicle for ridiculous quantities of ketchup. And after the relative claustrophobia of the East Coast, with buildings and trees so close that there was never a real sense of horizon, that feeling of the whole world opening up, opening into long stretches of highway and possibility, as if my mind and heart were opening right along with it, I remember a seemingly endless sea of rolling corn. An occasional shady tree broke that eternal corn sea with an inevitable cluster of cows gathered underneath to escape the noonday Nebraska heat. In childhood time, that corn sea went on forever, until finally at last, mountains. We came in south from Colorado on 285. There were thunderheads up above, and the late afternoon light was streaming through in rays, illuminating the dry hills with what poet Gerard Manley Hopkins once called doom fire. And to the west, mesas and mountains receded into a horizon shaped like interlocking puzzle pieces of transparent blue light. I remember saying, look, to my parents excitedly, and I think that excitement came from the fact that the rules that I had known of place had changed. Transparent canyons could overlap. Earth could be blue. You could see rainstorms as distinct skirted beings sweeping across a landscape. The world was different than I had imagined, and in stoking my imagination of the different, it was like the whole world was inviting me to be different fat drops of rain started hitting the windshield of the car in a percussive thrum i've always loved that fat rain and the smell of petrichor the scent of the desert in a thunderstorm the best thing ever one of those experiences of which one could say it was all worth it because i got to experience it you know this life may have been hard in some ways but i also got to smell the scent of summer rain in the high desert so there we were we rounded a corner And a battered wooden sign read, Welcome to the Land of Enchantment. That's the state slogan of New Mexico, you see. The Land of Enchantment. Growing up, I never thought much about what the phrase meant. Maybe just that it was a beautiful place that it had, what was it, a certain something. It could be hot and dry and glaring and even seemingly inhospitable, and then the light would change and illuminate a tower of clouds, and you could see a hundred miles on all sides and feel enchanted. The word enchanted is thrown around a lot without much thought to context or meaning. Yet, from its deep mythic origins and fairy tale expressions, the word enchantment has made its way through the back door of modern thought and imagination. We describe something as enchanting if it gives us a certain feeling, but that feeling remains difficult to describe. It's not just beautiful or awe-inspiring. What is it? Well, what if I were to tell you with a straight face that enchantment is not something reserved for fairy stories? or for vague tingling feelings when we encounter something mysteriously wonderful what if i were to tell you for example that enchanted land is an actual thing a very real thing i've been to dozens upon dozens of places that are enchanted you've probably walked unknowingly across enchanted land yourself there is enchanted land on at least six of the seven continents of planet earth and for a very, very long time, among very, very many people, land was not considered to even be in its full expression, to realize its full potential as land, unless it had been deliberately enchanted. In fact, the enchantment of land has been considered by many cultures their ultimate duty as human beings, and the implications of increasing swaths of unenchanted land are very real for both us and the planet. Today on the Emerald, Enchanted Lands remembering the holy hum between person and place. We may not know exactly what it is, but we use the word enchantment probably more than we even realize, and it finds its way into our culture where we least expect it. Enchanted Forest is a Jackson Pollock painting. Enchanted Land is also a romance novel, complete with the most quintessential of romance novel covers. There's an Enchanted Fairy Barbie doll, a punk rock album called Enchanted Forest by a band called Treefort, who spell Treefort with a PH, naturally. There are several ballets entitled Enchanted Forest, and a cross-country ski area with the same name. There are also a whole lot of Enchanted Forest theme parks. Many of them are now defunct. One of these Enchanted Forest theme parks was the setting for a horror movie called Fear of Clowns. Yikes. Nothing creepier than a defunct theme park. I wonder if a lingering spell of enchantment still inhabits the Enchanted Forest theme park in Hope Valley, Rhode Island, or in Chesterton, Indiana. You see, when fairy tale characters step into an enchanted land, there's a sense that they are entering a place that teeters on the verge of danger, that there is an entrapping quality to enchantment. In fact, in my teenage years, after I had gotten over the initial awe and wonder of it all, we used to nickname New Mexico the land of entrapment. There seemed to be an ineffable force that kept people stuck here. Many were the stories of people who just popped into New Mexico for a weekend visit and never left, like lost children in an enchanted forest. Yet the sense of enchantment as danger is often overemphasized or misconstrued. Enchantment in the fairy tales becomes tinged with a Christian overlay in which the assumption is that that which is of nature is inherently dangerous and to be avoided or treated with extreme caution. C.S. Lewis, for all his visionary understanding of nature, can't help but fall into this trope in the Narnia books, whose lands lie under the spell of a powerful witch and exist in eternal winter. So in this vision, enchantment relates to slumber, illusion, confusion, and danger, and it's usually witches doing the enchanting. But enchantment is a whole lot more than this. This isn't to say that danger is not an inherent and important part of our relationship with land and place. It actually is. But danger isn't the whole picture. We get a much bigger picture if we step out of that cultural veneer of illusion and danger and look a little deeper at enchantment. A good place to start is with what the word enchanted actually means. And right at the center of the word enchantment is the word to chant or to sing. To be enchanted is to be ensung. So enchanted land, in one sense, is land that has been sung to honored over many, many years through the repetitive ritual of song. It's impossible to count the number of cultures that have this proactive practice of singing to the land. If you've set foot on the Indian subcontinent, you've set foot on enchanted land. The land, the rivers, the trees, the rocks sung to as distinct goddesses of place, and an unbroken stream of song dating back thousands of years. If you've walked the trails of Moab or the paths outside of Taos, you have walked in enchanted land, the footfall of the turtle dancers the shake of their rattles enchanting the land over generations and generations. Certain aboriginal tribes hold the view that each place has a true name, and every time a person desires to enter that place, it's a good practice to call that land by its true name, which in the case of certain places can take a very long time. Like the name of this place in New Zealand, pardon my Maori, Taumata waka tangihanga kauauau o tamatea haumaii tawitiure hai turi pukaka piki munga horonuku pokai wenoa ki tanatahu, which means the hill on which tamatea played the nose flute. Tamatea, who was blown hither from afar, was slit, grazed his knees climbing the mountains, fell on the earth, and encircled the land to his beloved. In English, the word canton, which implies a corner but is also a confluence and also a song, means place, hinting at a deep recognition of the link between song and place. Sung land, enchanted land. So enchanted land is not only land that has been sung to, but perhaps land that has had its own song listened to and sung back to it. Land that is understood for its own specificity, as specific as a song. And through that understanding, the land radiates back in true expression of itself, the same way that a child beams when truly understood, or when sung to. And here we have to understand that there is in fact a difference in traditional thought between land that has been enchanted and land that has been ignored. This enchanted land is seen as more fundamentally awake or alive or harmonious or brimming in true expression than land that has been glossed over or ignored or wantonly destroyed, just as there is a difference between a sacred grove and a parking lot, even though both may technically occupy the same place. wonderful book on place and language, author Robert McFarlane talks a good deal about enchantment and place, and the modern disenchantment of the land, saying, quote, in 1917, the sociologist and philosopher Max Weber named disenchantment and zauberung as the distinctive injury of modernity. He defined disenchantment as, quote, the belief that there are no mysterious or incalculable forces that come into play but rather that one can, in principle, master all things by calculation. This year, 1917, was an apt year to speak about the disenchantment of land and person. World War I saw not only horrors of violence between people, but the first global witnessing of large-scale environmental destruction and what is lost when land is utterly destroyed. As Tate Keller says in an essay about the environmental impact of World War One. quote, The deformed landscape trapped the deadly vapors in shell holes in the seams of trenches. Burnt earth and craters like cauldrons with a horrid brew of mud, gore, and the green-yellow mists of stale gas struck the troops as the very image of hell. Literate, educated soldiers on both sides depicted the war-torn landscape through a common set of tropes, describing battlegrounds as fields of sterility where everything appears turned over, full of rottenness. The earth itself is corpse-like. Writings of soldiers repeatedly use the adjectives dark, ravaged, dreary, savage, eerie, barren, devastated, and hideously scarred to describe their surroundings. Some soldiers believed that the landscape had lost its nature. This sense of the losing of the land's nature is directly related to the loss of the specificity of place that the machines of modern war made possible. As horrible as war has always been, historic wars of foot soldier and spear and sword and horse took place within the theater of natural landscape. And like it or not, nature often dictated the terms of war rather than the other way around. Battles were decided by rain or fog or heat. But with the rise of massive artillery that could level entire landscapes, specificity of place was less and less an issue. All land could be bombed equally, charred equally, made uninhabitable equally. In an increasingly industrialized world, the experience of place itself mattered less and less, as any given place could be whizzed by over rail, or paved over, or planted with the same monocrop. Local lands and landscape features, that Hidden spring, that single oak tree with the knot just there, had begun to lose, as the soldier said, their nature. one soldier certainly saw this. His name was J.R.R. R. Tolkien, and the Great War profoundly influenced his vision of Middle-earth. Good and evil for Tolkien were deeply intertwined with and defined by a relationship with place and land. Where the medieval Christian saw evil within the woods, to the point that the Greek word for nature spirit, diamond, becomes the Christian word demon, Tolkien saw evil differently. He revived the animist vision of wood and brook evil was not in the forest evil was that which would seek to destroy the forest in the lord of the rings when frodo sets out on his adventure the first place he and his traveling companions find themselves is in the old forest which is certainly enchanted full of temporal distortions and trance inducing trees one of which an old willow tries to consume the unwitting travelers in fine fairy tale fashion But here we see a more nuanced vision of danger as it relates to enchantment. The forest is dangerous, but only to those who do not know its songs. The way out of danger, of course, is to know the song of a place. Frodo's savior, Tom Bombadil, trots along, singing to willows and alders, as thoroughly versed in the specificity of place as the old druids and troubadours of the British Isles must have been, with their seemingly unending lexicon of poetic place names. He sings the hobbits to safety, and is able to do so because he knows the true names of the trees. Old Man Willow, Bombadil says, I know the tune for him. understanding of specificity of place has always been intertwined with the idea and practice of enchantment. In Landmarks, McFarlane gives a wonderful example of a wind power project that was slated to be constructed on the moors of the Isle of Lewis. The project would have had a serious environmental impact on the moorland, and so there was a good deal of local protest against the project. One of the primary tactics employed by the power company was to try to depict the moor as a wasteland a kind of empty void into which the pouring of tons upon tons of concrete would not matter. They tried to disenchant the land. So the locals re-enchanted it. They gathered a treasure trove of lore and stories and songs and individual words related specifically to the moor and used it as evidence that the moor was in fact not dead at all. It was we who had become deadened to it, and they won. The project was cancelled through the power of enchantment. Farlan envisions such re-enchantment of place happening on a global scale. He envisions reclaiming words and songs of place in order to keep the hum of the canton, the song of specific place, alive. We need now, urgently, he says, a counter-desecration phrasebook that would comprehend the world, a glossary of enchantment which would allow nature to talk back and allow us to listen. Allowing nature to talk back can be interpreted metaphorically, as in, helping us to understand nature better through increasing our vocabulary of her specificity. Or it can be interpreted much more directly. Nature speaks. Nature sings. Every culture has stories and songs of place, and many of those stories are replete with talking stones, talking brooks, talking trees. For me, I've got a newborn son. I've reflected on what I will say to him if he ever asks me, Can trees talk? And the answer, unequivocally, is yes. We just have to learn to listen to what they have to say. As visionary author Martin Shaw writes, Places long to speak, great polyphonic blasts of forest oratory, or the thin keening of the hemlock. I tried to bathe my head in the golden chatter of holy places, and sometimes caught a word or two, sometimes silence. Sometimes a whole stanza of some great epic buried in the grandeur of a Dartmoor tour. The earth's rough harmonies are more than the metaphors of the writer, but the primordial root relationship between us and the living world. I have begun to suspect that underneath the ancient caves, buried arrowheads and mineral deposits, the continents of this world are huge, dreaming animals. It bears repeating, more than the metaphors of the writer, but the primordial root relationship between us and the living world. Poetry and song are not simply ornament when it comes to describing place. They are in fact the only accurate reflection of our true relationship with place. What is needed to reawaken the holy hum that exists between person and place is a new and yet ancient vocabulary. And this is vocabulary in all senses of the word, the language of perceiving, noticing, listening, breathing, humming, singing, speaking, a ritual vocabulary, a regular mode of honoring, a repetitive and focused cry of the heart, a deep reciprocity. <laughs> There's a story that they tell, or rather, sing, in India, of a goddess, the goddess in fact, the universal mother. And to right a grave injustice, she leaps into a sacrificial fire. Her charred body splits into 51 parts and falls to earth. And where each smoldering part lands, a temple arises so that the entire subcontinent of India can be defined as a map of the fallen parts of the great goddess's body. There are many stories about what happens next. In one, the goddess reincarnates and goes on a great pilgrimage to restore all the parts of her own fallen body. She climbs high mountains and fords deep rivers, and is met with fire and wind and wild nature spirits. And each place she goes, she follows a ritual of re-enchantment. She sits and meditates. She engages the local goddesses of place in dialogue. The name of each goddess is indistinguishable from the name of the place. The goddess is the place. Of course, she sings to all of them. She re enchants the place. And in this way, she makes herself whole again. She remembers the scattered pieces of her own body. Pilgrims, myself included, trek across the subcontinent to visit these places, the places where the dismembered body of the goddess fell to earth. At each place, the local land is honored with deep specificity. The goddess is that one confluence of rivers, that one dip in the ridgeline, that one spreading banyan tree. The goddess is that spring. And each goddess is engaged with a deeply specific set of sonic invocations, designed for no other place but that one. In the sacred geographic vision of Indian tradition, these places are also places within the human being, within the body. So as the pilgrim honors external place, they also honor internal place. They re-enchant the world and their place in it through ongoing ritual of song, word, breath, meditation, image, and movement. They envision the temples of the goddess architected on the geography of their own body they ritually install the sounds of the goddesses upon their own bodies as syllables of light. It is as if the body of the practitioner, David Shulman writes, had become a resonant musical mantric instrument, as such identical to the no less resonant deity. And the resonant deity, of course, is place. A continuum of person and place, A worldview that would see the body and the land around us as not fully real or at least not fully realized unless it is enchanted breath by breath over and over and over again. I've been to one place, the place where the womb of the universal mother fell to earth and she rose again as a series of natural rock springs. There's a goddess who lives there named Bagalamuki, and her temple is built around a smooth, rounded rock face about 30 feet across that seeps with life-giving water. It's custom after taking part in the temple darshan to go sit in front of the rock face. My wife and I sat there for some time, listening to a group of women as they sang to the weeping rock. There is a difference between enchanted place place that has been sung to repetitively, honored and cherished, and place that has been forgotten, cast aside, used up. There is a difference when you go to the weeping rock and you hear the women sing. The place itself hums, it reverberates with enchantment. The role of human beings, as envisioned by culture upon culture throughout history, is to develop a deep reciprocity with the land, And the foundation of that reciprocity, as seen by many of these cultures, is enchantment. Author Robin Wall Kimmerer, in her beautiful book Braiding Sweetgrass, tells of a survey she did of her students in which students could not envision a positive relationship of reciprocity that human beings could have with the earth. They couldn't see, amidst all the environmental destruction, what we could give back. Beyond the countless ways in which humans can help tend the garden of the earth materially through permaculture, agroforestry, intelligent forest management, tree planting, there is a deep knowledge, wisdom, patience, specificity, hope, resonance, vision, imagination, actualization that is available only through the mechanism of enchantment. Failure to recognize or listen to or participate in the enchantment of place can result in a variety of human stumblings. From that classic horror movie trope of building a suburban subdivision on an old Indian burial ground, to the Saudi prince's current plan to bring Jurassic Park to life in the middle of the Arabian desert complete with full-size robotic dinosaurs and a rainforest planted where no rainforest should ever go this failure also of course deanimates and despecifies place and makes its wanton destruction philosophically permissible our failure to enchant place or to see place as enchanted, and our destruction of the planet go hand in hand. The day of this podcast recording, Swedish teenage activist Greta Thunberg admonished the UN for their lack of action on climate change with the words, You have stolen my dreams and childhood. In her statement, one can hear the direct cry of a young person who feels that their right to a future on a livable planet is being sold off. And one can also feel, on another level, a loss of enchantment a loss of the ability to imagine and interact with place as sacred and mysterious and unknowable and free. Children naturally see an enchanted world, Macfarlane says, in which place always holds the promise of a secret tree or a door to another world. But there is a deep effect on the human mind and imagination to live in a world in which every inch of place has been charted and mapped, and every inch of that charted and mapped space is viewed as compromised or tainted in some way those replenishing dips in the ocean baptisms from which the body emerges clean and clear are now tinged with the knowledge of microplastics and chemical pollutants the purest vista now seems somehow less than it was and infused with the stress of the thought will it last landscapes become less enchanted as we see them as more and more finite I wonder at the long-term cumulative effect of this type of disenchantment with the world. I feel, and of course cannot prove, that this type of underlying lack of trust in the wholeness of our ecosystem will exponentially increase the health issues that human beings face in the coming years. Put another way, much human illness is born of stress, and what greater underlying stress can there be than the knowledge that the earth itself is ailing, But we all have a right, even still, to that childhood of the mind, to those unexplored forests, to those wildnesses, to the songs of place. And not only do we have the right, it is necessary for the planet itself. Awakening people to the song of a place can save it, as with Macfarlanes Moor, and can also save us. There is a difference between conserving the wilderness and the re-enchanting of place. There is a difference between fighting for the planet, which of course we should all continue to do in our own ways, and participating in deep reciprocity with the land. There is a difference for the land, and there is a difference for us. The restoring of Greta's dreams has to happen on multiple levels. Yes, we need to make the seismic environmental shifts necessary to preserve the global ecosystem, But we also need to ensure that as we do this, there are enchanted forests for her to wander in. And that's not just metaphor. In the times that come, this ongoing process of re-enchantment of person and place will be vital and necessary. We are going to need the qualities that enchantment imbues in us. We are going to need patience and the ability to listen and a deep reconnection with local place and an understanding of long-term, truly long-term vision. We are going to need imagination more than ever, leaders who have listened to bird calls and the sound of running water, leaders who have felt within themselves deep peace so they can actually build it, leaders who can move hearts rather than recite facts more people who have embedded in their bodies the feeling of enchantment and can instill in others the wonder of preservation rather than just the tedious work of it. This is the womb from which the urban spaces of tomorrow will be imagined, from which alternative visions of society and interaction with the ecosystem will be forged. And this positive transformation of the world can't simply happen by tortured anxiousness at the state of things. It has to be enchanting. It has to be enchanted. As Shaw says, quote, bashing a drum of complaint and statistics can make a shrill sound, no matter how well-intentioned. And I don't think the old nature gods are overly impressed with it either. Grief has a watery quality that they seem to enjoy, in which we send clouds of feeling back to the sea, handled well and ritually sanctioned. Grief will be eaten by the gods. Our words need to reach not only the wires and lights of the modern world, but into minute caves where the old heroes sleep with one ear open for a beautiful word. Every time they hear one, they blink a tear of oceanic moisture for the tumbling earth. Whether we like it or not, humans are firmly anchored to place Despite visions of leaving it all behind in favor of Martian colonization, a pipe dream when we can't even feed our own poor, in the coming years we may very well see how firmly bound we actually are to place. In this world there will be a strong role to play for those who know place well, who have taken the time to understand and listen to a valley and a stream, who give thanks for the sunlight in the morning. We need to do this work. As Shaw says, The mythology of wilderness needs to be articulated as the mythology of ourselves. So for me, one of the things I do is practice walking through the woods with my eyes and ears open. I also sing to the trees. I do this whenever I walk alone in the wilderness. I sing to the aspen groves. I sing to the dark firs. I imagine how much I'm missing, how much our ancestors were able to see and hear entire lexicons of direct transmission that are hidden from me but there is so much to hear listen you might just become enchanted This podcast contains reference to several books, movies, and articles. These include Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, Landmarks by Robert McFarlane, More Than Real by David Shulman, A Branch from the Lightning Tree by Martin Shaw, Destruction of the Ecosystem in World War I by Tate Keller, A Journey in the World of the Tantras by Mark Diskowski, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. The Kubjika Mata Tantra, a 13th century Niwari text on the goddess Kubjika and her pilgrimage of self and place. And, of course, Fear of Clowns, a horror movie that I have not and will never see. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the emerald podcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash The Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as $6 per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder.